Welcome to Connecting the Docs, a podcast from the State Archives of North Carolina, where archivists connect archival materials to fascinating and true stories from the past. The theme of season two is Unprocessed, where each week we deliver rare and often overlooked topics related to North Carolina's storied history. Now here's your host, John Horan. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Connecting the Docs, our last episode for the year. We'll be back after the holidays with some great stories to finish the season. In the meantime, today we're going to talk about freeways and urban renewal. I'm here with my interns, Madison Riley. Hello. And Michelle Witt. Hello. On today's episode of Connecting the Docs, we are going to talk about the highway system and civil rights, sort of an odd intersection, if you will, but... I think the both of you can sort of enlighten us on that. That's the goal. Excellent. All right. So where where are we going to start here? Give us the roadmap. Go ahead. So in the mid-20th century, growth in North Carolina accelerated. Cities were booming and the economy transformed from one that was largely agriculture with mills and farms into one that was more industrial with a complex mix of technology, education, finance, and other white-collar trades. In the midst of all of this, the civil rights movement signaled the urge and need for social change across a state that had been largely segregated until the mid to late 1960s. That's such a good point, Madison. And I think it's worth noting that integration was really just the beginning. It was a path forward to address inequities in schooling and in unemployment opportunity, but change doesn't happen overnight. Decision-making at the state and national level demonstrated that true equity was gonna be a long time coming. So today we wanted to take a closer look at just one dimension of development in North Carolina that had a profound negative impact on black communities and that is our highways. I'm so glad you mentioned highways, Michelle, because in the first half of the 20th century, towns across North Carolina were largely connected by two-lane roads. That changed here and across the nation with the passage of the um, Federal Act, Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956, which paved the way, no pun intended, for interstate highways to accelerate travel by road and improve amenities for these travelers. But it makes you think, were the highways beneficial to all? That's a really great question. I think the answer is that the program had benefits, but it also had major consequences for communities. We hear a lot the term urban renewal, and that was defined as the redevelopment of inner city areas with the goal of rebuilding for broad economic gain. The problem is urban renewal often resulted in the demolition of inner city areas, and that included entire neighborhoods, to make way for freeways and development that was simply more profitable. Interstates are only part of that equation. In order to qualify for federal funds, states had to put up their own share of money and they had to plan what were called trunk highways and feeder highways. And those highways ensured that major routes reached major destinations. So that's how neighborhoods began to just disappear. So with the help of our own enthusiastic archivists, we searched through numerous collections, finding maps, photos, correspondence, clippings, and reports that painted a very sobering but human portrait of what it meant to be part of a Black community 
whose very existence was threatened by highway development. So we will share three locations where urban renewal had profound impacts on our black community. And here's what we found for the Durham Haytai community, which was named after the first independent black country, Haiti. So the Durham Haytai community, which is also known as the Haytai district, emerged a few years after the civil war around the congregation of St. Joseph's AME church in 1868 and the construction of the building in 1891. So African-Americans migrated to Durham to work in tobacco factories, which were located near Fayetteville Street in downtown Durham. This area became a predominantly black tight-knit community. So the Haytai district was mo mostly located along Fayetteville, Pettigrew, and Pine Streets and was one of the first African-American communities to be fully self-sufficient and was known as the Black Wall Street in Durham. So now, let me just break in here. So I just wanted to know about this particular community. Did they always own that property? So the land was initially owned and rented by white people, but over time was purchased for and by the black community. During segregation, suburbs popped up and white people moved out of the city, leading to downtown Durham to be full of black-owned businesses, and it was thriving. During the early 20th century, there were over 200 black-owned businesses in the Haytai district. Because of this success and the success of the community, they began building and upgrading within the district, including large commercial buildings, a library, a theater, hotels, and Lincoln Hospital, and many more. If it was so successful, I'm not, I don't really understand. Where does urban renewal fit in? That's a great question, John. So urban renewal came to Durham in the late 1950s to early 60s. And it had a goal to tear down what they referred to as slums to create a quote-unquote better version of downtown. The Durham City Council's solution to the traffic and sparse parking areas, which there were sparse parking because with the emergence of highways and new roads, it led to the purchase of more automobiles and the need for parking went up. So the council's solution was to rehabilitate and renovate. And to do that, they proposed the Durham Expressway which is also known as the North Carolina Highway 147 and Durham Freeway. This highway would split the Haytai community completely in half and displace the culture and economic ecosystem that they created over centuries. But overall, Durham's economy was going downhill and was on the back burner since the booming research triangle was created in 1958. Durham government officials felt as if urban renewal was the way to rebuild Durham into a more profitable economical city and by building a highway that connected Durham to the research triangle and creating less congestion from suburbs to downtown. So in 1958, the Durham Redevelopment Commission adopted a plan to renovate 200 acres of the Haytai community. The first project began in 1960 and was very slow lasting until 1962, causing roads in the Haytai district to be closed and businesses isolated. Located in the Terry Sanford Governor's Papers Collection within the North Carolina State Archives are several documents relating to the delay in construction. One being a memorandum sent from Governor Terry Sanford to the commander of Wake State Highway Commission, Merrill Evans, on October 13, 1961, indicating some concern from the Urban Renewal Commission on the delays in construction. Governor Sanford received a response from W.F. Babcock, who was the state highway director from 1957 to 1967, on October 1961, stating the first design was estimated to be 8 miles in length and 19 million which they considered excessive, and so they began reanalyzing the plans for reduced costs, which obviously takes time and led to the delays, which heavily impacted the Haytai district. 
The district was a very closed internal community, which was seen economically unhelpful to Durham since everything stayed within the community. This made it a primary target for urban renewal. The houses in the community were described as decrepit, the land was seen as slum and blighted. Photographs of the area have been digitalized and are a part of the Durham Urban Renewal Records located on digital and scene platform and were contributed by the Durham County Library. To gain support for the project, city officials made three big promises to the black community. New housing, new commercial development, and major infrastructural improvements in black neighborhoods. So what did happen to those living in the Hayside District? The government relocated those people living in the district into existing housing, new public housing, and 150 units of private housing. But those relocated had to pay rent to the commission after their property was sold at quote-unquote fair market value. So on October 6, 1962, a bond referendum was held. The public were able to vote on several topics. There were four topics on the ballot that were specific to urban renewal. They were water, street, underpass, and sewer bonds. There was more information on each topic in the Durham Urban Renewal brochures and booklet records located on Digital NC platform and were contributed by the Durham County Library. People at the time, especially the black community, knew little about urban renewal, but with the guidance of the Durham Committee on Negro Affairs, who believed that the new highway would bring investment into the black community and the Haytown District, the 1962 bond for urban renewal in the Haytai District was passed by very close margins and had a 90% of black votes. Obviously, from what we know, exists there now. The Haytai community was never rebuilt. Hundreds of businesses were never rebuilt. Thousands of people were displaced and forced to find new living situations, and the community was never the same. The only building left after demolition is St. Joseph's AME which was built in 1891 on Fayetteville Street. And since then, it's been used as the Haytai Heritage Center since 1975. The Durham Freeway now runs parallel to Pettigrew Street, taking out the primary businesses on the Haytai District. What was once Fayetteville Street is now known as Old Fayetteville Street. And today, in the place of homes and shops, runs the Durham Expressway. And that's the story of the Durham Haytai community being displaced by highways, specifically Highway 147. Unfortunately, this isn't the only case of displacement of black communities in North Carolina by highways. Another is Smoky Hollow. Michelle? Thanks, Madison. While you were busy looking in the state archives for material on the Haytai community, I found some interesting examples that are a little bit closer to where we sit in the state archives today. One of the principal ones was a neighborhood called Smoky Hollow. If that sounds familiar to you, it's in an area that is currently populated with a lot of brand new condo development. And one of those condo buildings is called Smoky Hollow as what might be seen as an homage to the history of the neighborhood. Now, Smoky Hollow was located in a neighborhood that was on and around Peace Street and what is currently Seaboard Station. There are a lot of images, both aerial and street view images, in the State Archives News and Observer Negative Collection. And lucky for us and anyone who's interested, these are all available on Flickr. Unfortunately, unlike the Haytai community, there's not a lot of government-type documentation of what happened here. It's a little bit more atmospheric, a little bit more of what we see as street life. It was a collection of very modest stick-built homes. There was a mill in the neighborhood. There was a baseball diamond. 
there was a roundhouse for the trains that terminated in that area at the time. But there are still some familiar things. I think anyone who is familiar with Raleigh will recognize the railroad bridge at Peace Street. Another really great source of material is the Albert Barding collection, and that's another collection of photography that's available on Flickr from the State Archives. One of the really interesting things revealed was the existence of a street that is no longer there, and, and we know that there's many of them, but it's just really interesting seeing, for example, a street called Cary Street that we can find on old maps, but we can't see it today. Oh, wow, that's so cool. Are there any other ones that you found? Yeah, there actually were. Another photo showed what used to be the intersection of North Street and North Dawson Street. And those are both streets that exist. They just don't intersect in the same way anymore. And that's approximately where the Wake County Government Services Center is now. It used to be the site of a mill. So as I was going through archival material, I saw in the News and Observer collection there was evidence of public hearings about the Smoky Hollow neighborhood. Now keep in mind, this was a poor neighborhood neighboring a mill, largely inhabited by black residents. In the 1940s, apparently it was seen as something of a problem. And the term that was used in Durham also got used in Raleigh. It was, it was called a slum at the time. As part of so-called urban renewal and redevelopment of downtown, it began to be seen as something that needed to be changed dramatically. Another consideration in all this development is what is now known as Capitol Boulevard. It did not exist in the 1940s or the 1950s. It was built in the 1960s. And what's fascinating is there are aerial photos from 1964 that show construction of quote-unquote downtown boulevard. I think it maybe was referred to as Old Lewisburg Road at one point as well. You see this major highway under construction with cleared land around it. And that is approximately where all these high-rise condos are today. Now, you said there's cleared land. Did they clear what they needed? Did they clear more than they needed? How did, how did they know? How did, you, how did you find that? That's a great question, John. I can really only presuppose based on what I find in the documents. And one document I found in the North Carolina Digital Collections, and this was the State Capital Planning Commission in 1965, stating that part of the strategy for land development at the time was to really rapidly acquire land in areas where values were appreciating. They wanted to avoid paying higher prices later, so they decided that it was going to be prudent for their long-term vision to acquire it sooner. So there is land that actually did stay vacant in service of future as yet undetermined development. And so now, what's there today? What's the, what's the connection? It's so funny you say that because I think that anyone who spends time in Raleigh may know just by the street names that we're talking about Glenwood South. We're talking the north edge of downtown, including a number of government buildings, Seaboard Station, and the area around what is now Peace University. It's all very developed, and not only is it so developed, but it's also been recently redeveloped even, and I think there's still as yet more redevelopment. It's just a, an area that is highly valuable in terms of land use and land value today, and that value is continuing to skyrocket. But it was really at the expense of working class families that lived there for generations early in the 20th century. Wow. So both of these stories kind of show a, a 
marginalized community being displaced. Now, you mentioned there's a third story on the, on the horizon for us? That's correct, John. My research took me to another part of downtown Raleigh. This is a neighborhood that is actually still in existence. It's called Southside, and it is, as the name suggests, just south of downtown Raleigh, behind Memorial Auditorium and adjacent to Shaw University. It also is known as South Park. Many residents today may not recognize photos of it from the 1950s because construction of what was then called the Western Boulevard Extension displaced an untold number of families. However, even in the midst of this displacement and this incredible change brought about by urban renewal, we, we found some surprising discoveries. Once again, the State Archives took us into the photo documentation of the mid-century, and so these are images that are available in the State Archives Flickr collection. They show truly abundant street life, families, multiple generations, just so much activity in this neighborhood. There were small businesses, there were houses, single family, multiple family, billboards, just so much activity. One photo from the Albert Barden collection shows the existence of a Fayetteville Street Baptist Church. And if that's confusing to you, keep in mind that Fayetteville Street once actually extended from downtown south, and there's still a tiny portion of it that exists south of what is now Martin Luther King Boulevard. Okay, so yeah, this Fayetteville Street Church, you have you mentioned that it's you've had a lot of photographs of it. But is there something in the documentary evidence that's kind of influences this story and informs this story? Yeah, there was actually quite a lot, but I want to offer the caveat that it took a little bit of digging. The photographic evidence of this neighborhood is very easy to find, and there's a lot of it. But I was interested in learning the story behind these photos, and so that took me into the State Archives building in downtown Raleigh where I started going through some, some old boxes. I found a box of Department of Transportation System planning files from the mid to late 1960s. And these are not processed files. What I mean by that is that they have not been cataloged or organized. And so it was literally a box of files that has sat in storage for probably the past 50 years or close to 50 years. I wanted to learn more about this development of what was then called the Western Boulevard Extension. And it was part of a what was called the Raleigh Area Major Thoroughfare Program in service of the notion of this urban renewal idea. It was very much about connecting downtown Raleigh to what would eventually be Interstate 40. And so they had the idea that there would be this Western Boulevard extension across the south side of downtown, and then the North-South Freeway, which would connect downtown to what is currently South Saunders Street and I-40. They foresaw incredible growth. They weren't wrong. And even at the time, the evidence of traffic congestion supported the fact that there needed to be more roads to handle the traffic. So in 1967, there were public hearings about these particular highway developments. There are all kinds of like scribbled notes and some minutes from these meetings that show input from the local community, from residents of Southside. 
nothing that really appears like a coordinated community effort, just a couple of anecdotal comments saying, we don't really want a road. This is going to have a negative impact on our community. I'm sitting here thinking, wow, okay, so this road just happened. But it surely didn't just happen. So amid all this documentation from the planners who were working on these highways, it just didn't seem like it was more than a nominal acknowledgement that people weren't a big fan in this neighborhood. But then in 1969, something happened. And that was that Shaw University, remember Shaw University is the neighbor to the east of the Southside neighborhood. They wanted to expand and they saw this road development as both detrimental to the neighborhood and detrimental to their own expansion plans. They're the ones who originated a genuine coordinated effort that really was completely unprecedented at the time. So they came up with this idea for what they called an educational charrette. A charrette is a fancy term for a workshop, as best as I can determine. It brought together people from all different sides of the issue. So there were Shaw University representatives, there were residents of the Southside community, and there were representatives of the city and the state. This was fully integrated, which was quite unusual for the time, and it was nine days long. It was a marathon. And there were some really influential people involved in this whole discussion. People who were both black and white leaders in North Carolina at the time. At one point, they even brought in some students to participate. I loved the fact that the students really brought some extremely candid perspectives that I think really would resonate for anyone who saw them today. I agree. Going through those clippings that you found were really interesting. One of my favorite quotes that I found and thought was interesting was, I'll read it. It is from the News Observer, November 6, 1969, and it is Carnage Jr. High students' questions to Shah Sharet panel. And the quote is, all this talk about urban renewal is nothing but black removal. Where are they going to put all the people that highway displaces? These junior high students were asking questions that the council members did not have answers to, and they were pointing out great things that were ignored. That's a great quote, and, and it, it underscores what all, all three of these stories have, have said. But in, this, in the Southside case, what, what's the end result there? It's a good question, and the documentation is not clear to me precisely what happened after this charrette. There was significant news coverage at the time, and it depicts kind of some, some ups and downs and highs and lows of the whole experience. At one point, all of the white participants were asked to leave, which is kind of a fascinating move at the time, for sure. That said, they clearly were not permanently banned from the proceedings because they were there to document, and the consultant who worked on the highway did a report on the event afterwards talking about the dialogue and the impact, and that was something that was shared with state and community leaders. And part of that report was producing alternatives to the existing freeway plans for that neighborhood. And that was kind of where it ended. We can see now anyone who drives in and out of Raleigh using the southernmost roads knows that the roads that lead into downtown Raleigh proper are not freeways. And so clearly there was some kind of compromise there. 
I think maybe that's that's what we get out of this. It's like for maybe one of the first times there was a give and take with a local predominantly black community that resulted in something that resembled a compromise, which isn't to say that they didn't lose homes and that families weren't displaced because they certainly were. But in a town and in a state that had until just a few years earlier been segregated, it really is a remarkable piece of progress in its own way. I think it's an interesting story. I would love to learn more. And if any of our listeners are from Southside or have family members who lived in Southside during this era, we'd love to hear your stories. Yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and double down on that. We're, we're doing all sorts of work trying to, trying to collect these stories in these communities that have been underserved and underrepresented. If there are members who are from either Haytai or the Smoky Hollow or Southside districts, I'd love to hear from them. And I want to thank you two for bringing these three stories to us and kind of showing us how different and yet at the same time how similar they are, right? There's, the, there's these stories that, that highlight there's an institutional racism built into the highway network that North Carolinians use all the time. Do either of you have any other concluding thoughts that we can kind of end on? No, I think we covered it all. I don't think so, John. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. You're absolutely welcome. I want to I want to thank you both for, you know, processing this unprocessed part of our history and particularly in the case of some of those boxes unearthing them from storage. Um, and I want to, you know, thank you both for bringing it to us and and connecting the docs in this way. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. Connecting the Docs is a podcast created by staff members of the State Archives of North Carolina. Special thanks this week to my interns, Madison Riley and Michelle Witt, to our producer, Randon McRae, and to the person behind the voice you hear at the beginning and end of every podcast, Judy Allen Dodson. We'll be back in the new year to process more stories from North Carolina's archives. And I'm your host, John Horan. Thanks for joining us this week on Connecting the Docs unprocessed. Make sure to visit our website, connectingthedocs.podbean.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our blog, History for All the People, at ncarchives.wordpress.com. For more news and information, please visit our website, archives.ncdcr.gov.